Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Dr. Terrence M. Dorn, Colonel, U.S. Army retired, knows a thing or two about national security. He was deployed to a number of combat zones while serving in the military. He earned several degrees, including an M.S. in National Security Strategy from the National War College and served as military assistant to the Secretary of Defense in 2013. He's written several books, including U.S. Critical Infrastructure, Its Importance and Vulnerabilities to Cyber and Unmanned Systems. But before we get to that, tell us what you do in Saudi Arabia. I help the Ministry of Defense and uh, the company that I work for, we're responsible for a number of deliverables. But all of the deliverables are geared toward helping them as they modernize and get more effective and more efficient. In military capability or? Not really in capability, but in organization. So do you need, for example, and I'm just making this up. Uh, do you need 400 generals? And if the answer is no, then let's streamline this hierarchy of yours. You know, do you need multiple forces? If not, let's combine them and make them more, again, efficient and effective. So not not terribly difficult, but it does require a certain brain trust and level of experience. So sometimes it's very fun and rewarding and sometimes it's not, but that probably is true of life in general, I suppose. Yeah. For sure it is. But what compelled you to write U.S. critical infrastructure? I actually did what my university and my dissertation chair believe was the first of its kind dissertation. And it was an examination of the threat posed to U.S. nuclear power plants by unmanned aerial systems. Everyone had gotten very lax, so they refer to all these neat things as drones. So what's the threat posed to nuclear power plants by drones? That was published, and I said, you know what? I'd like to write a trilogy. So the first book came out uh, following my my dissertation, and I wrote it, tried to come up with a neat title. I wrote it, and it was called Unmanned Systems, Savior Threat. So I looked at all the nifty things that went beyond the dissertation topic. So a lot of people say, well, drones are are only in the air, and that's not true. There are surface ones that are on land, on top of the sea, water, and there are also undersea systems. So that was the next book. This one here, I said, you know what? Uh, I was working at DHS, and I said, I bet we don't have a strategy that looks at protecting the U.S. homeland. And in fact, we didn't. So one of the first government strategies that I wrote for them was exactly what I just said. So Department of Homeland Security strategy for countering unmanned systems armed with WMDs. Hmm. But the second book, this book, the critical infrastructure one, it looks at the threat posed to all 16 sectors of U.S. uh, of the U.S. critical infrastructure. There's 16 sectors. 
The U.S. has something on the order of a $23.32 trillion GDP, the largest GDP in the world. The next closest competitor is China, which estimates are is at $17 trillion. About two years ago, they passed the Japanese, which has a GDP of roughly $12 trillion. So I thought, you know what, let's take a look at this. Let's put out what we know, all of it open source. There is no classified information, and I don't want to scare anybody, but there are a number of vulnerabilities when you have over 15,000 facilities that are components of those 16 sectors of U.S. critical infrastructure. So that's why I wrote it, and that was my intent to inform and educate. But let me ask you this. Let me back up just a minute. The, the first book you wrote, when did you write it? You're testing my memory. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just curious. Uh, I believe it was 2019. I had started tidbits of it because I was in the Army for almost 30 years, and my specialty was air defense. Okay. So I always wrote little things, and uh, that was that was me bringing all those little things together and updating it. So following that, I did the uh, critical infrastructure. I think that, well, it was supposed to come out last year, but I think it was delayed until February of this year. Hmm. And I'm finishing what I called the, the trilogy. I'm finishing the third one, which I'm really excited about because I take all kinds of lessons learned from outer space, from the Ukraine-Russia war, which really has turned into a testbed for unmanned systems. So if you're a company and you're backing Russia, and there aren't a lot, it's mostly China and Iran, if you're a company or a country back in Ukraine, and there are many of those, you send your system over and you say, uh, here you go, give it a whirl, uh, and if it works, then we'll send you more. And uh, that has truly turned into a eye-opening experience for many people. And governments, by and large, have ignored this threat and not taken it seriously. But if you just pay attention to what they're doing in Ukraine, critical infrastructure is being attacked every day. They apparently also executed an unmanned surface system, that is to say, something akin to a sea-do, a boat on top of the water. Mm-hmm armed with explosives, and uh, drove it into the bridge that connects Crimea with Mother Russia. And apparently they've, uh, they've closed that down now. But again, unmanned systems across the board, air, land, sea, undersea, are being demonstrated uh, in this one area of the world, unfortunately. And all you have to do is pay attention. It's remarkable. Well, I think most people are not paying attention because I think... It's everything they can do to get through a day. You, no, you're absolutely correct, and I agree. I understand. Yeah. Does it affect me? Does it affect my job, my family? And if the answer is no, then I don't really care too much. Right. But the funny thing is, even back in 2017, there were over 3,000 reports of unmanned aerial systems over U.S. critical infrastructure. And there were a couple attacks, although they had been very uh, they've been kept very low-key, maybe even squashed, but there was an attack against a French nuclear plant in 2014, no damage. Uh, 2015 in Japan, even in the U.S., um, 2019, there were two attacks, and it's remarkable that the largest 
U.S. nuclear power plant, which is actually located in Palo Verde, Arizona, Mm -hmm. and it partially feeds two states. So in 2019, sometime in October, there were two swarms of extra-large unmanned aerial systems that flew into and around the buildings, and they blinked their lights at the security, which was kind of like a, hey, you can't do anything to me, I dare you. Um, But if you ask the NRC, and they flew off, and there was nothing the security could do. And if you ask the NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they will readily admit that there have been uh, 54, excuse me, 57 overflights of 26 nuclear power plants in just the last five years. Now, that's unclassified, so my guess is the classified number is even higher. And if, uh, if you were curious, there's a total of 96 operating nuclear power plants in the U.S., and it uh, collectively it provides 19.7% of the U.S. daily electricity requirements. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Where are we the most vulnerable? Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. The sad fact is we're vulnerable everywhere. Uh, I keep bringing up the nuclear power plants because it's a very easy example. Right. But the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has complete dominance of that industry. Now, the funny thing is 96% of all U.S. nuclear power plants are owned and operated by commercial companies, but they are not allowed to get sensors or counter unmanned aerial system equipment to defend themselves or deter um, unmanned aerial systems from overflying them by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Well, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. But if, uh, if you ask anybody at the NRC, they'll tell you that we did a security study. It was three years long. It ended in 2019. And we came to the conclusion that there is no threat posed by unmanned aerial systems in the U.S. to nuclear power plants. Well, life moves rapidly, and if you, if you take nothing away from the two soon-to-be-three books on this topic, take away that these capabilities, this technology, is moving so fast that nobody is ahead of it. Everyone is playing catch-up from the back of the bus, and that's truly unfortunate, and it should be scary, too. It, it is scary, but it seems to me the people that could possibly do something about that are the ones that need to read your books, right? You would think government officials, you know, like, they know. How much do they know? How much do they want to acknowledge? If you ask the federal government, uh, you know, there are a number of priorities. So defending against the threat posed by an unmanned aerial system, over 15,000 facilities that make up your 16 sectors of critical infrastructure, my God. The cost of that would, would, I guess, and I did not do the math, probably be in the billions. Right. Do we have billions to waste on this? And the answer is no, because there's more pressing issues. So I hate to say it, but I was a employee uh, in the Pentagon, a United States Army officer, and I got blown up when the plane hit on 9-11. Soon after that, we got very serious about security at airports. Hence the TSA. Right. So I think it will take something major, and I hope I'm wrong, but hope is not a method. I sure hope I'm wrong 
that it'll take something major before the leadership of this country, which is embroiled in all kinds of nonsense that is really not in the best interests of U.S. national security, until they focus on this. And then we'll throw a lot of money at it, like we did the TSA. And then a few years later, maybe it'll be fully functioning and operational. But we don't have a few years if we're facing a smarter enemy or a terrorist that is not dumb, but is smart. I would imagine we are developing our own systems, as you mentioned in the beginning, right? We're probably sending drones over to the Ukraine to see how they do and knocking things out. And is is that what like the like Lockheed Martins are doing now? These de- these big defense contractor type companies is that where their focus is now on developing, you know, the drone technology? Are we still going to need surface-to-air missiles and that kind of weaponry? You know, that's a very good question, and I'll do my best to give you a very good answer. So as far as I'm aware, there is no U.S. predator, you know, large unmanned aerial system being provided to Ukraine. Ukraine has largely benefited from all of the nations that have said Russia is not only a bully, but it illegally annexed land. It illegally invaded Ukraine. We're going to we're going to help. We're going to give weapon systems. Right. So what they've been giving are a lot of in the beginning anyway, a lot of unmanned aerial systems like Turkey gave them a lot of TB2s. And for those that uh, that don't know what a TB2 is, the the Turkish government asked the U.S. for many years, please sell us the Predator. So we use the Predator in a number of uh, conflicts, wars, and it's, it was very good at what it did, still is. But the U.S. said, no, we're not going to, because we believe that you're going to immediately turn around and use it against the Kurds in eastern Turkey, and we don't want to be a part of genocide. The Turkish government said, no, we won't do that, we promise. Mm. So the U.S. did not sell it to them. So a Turkish company... Uh, the son of the Turkish company owner married the youngest daughter of the Turkish prime minister, president, excuse me, president. So he said, not only will I turn my my dad's company uh, into something even better, I'm going to make it into a unmanned aerial system company that exports around the world. So they built the TB2. And in the beginning, the TB2 was very good at attacking Russian uh, tanks. And if you remember, there was a a very large line of the ship. Uh, What that is to say is the flagship of the Russian Navy in the Black Sea was the Moskva. And it was sitting off the shore there, minding its own business, doing the the bad things that the Russian Navy uh, has been doing. And all of a sudden... A TBT, a TB2, a Turkish drone flew out of nowhere and shot, damaged the radar of the air defense systems. When it went blind, it therefore could not defend itself against aerial targets. So the Ukrainians, who have shown great resourcefulness, immediately fired two cruise missiles at the cruiser. What it did was it hit right in the middle of the ship broke it in half, the ship went down, all thanks to an unmanned aerial system 
that took out the air defense radars, which made all the rest of the billion-dollar air defense systems and missiles non-operational. So it does have a place to play, but mostly what is being supplied to Ukraine are counter systems now, jammers, missiles, lasers, etc. So the second part of your question is, is air defense important? Well, if you pay attention to the news, and most people probably aren't because it's dragged on for 500 days now, the Ukrainians initially were not doing well against aircraft. Right. So the missiles, the aircraft, the Russians were sending them. They were bombing, attacking. All of a sudden, it took a little while, but all of a sudden, what is probably the best, most resourceful, most innovative uh, air defense force, maybe globally, said, we're not going to take this anymore. And the U.S. sold them two Patriot units. The Russians immediately said, uh, Patriot, air and missile defense systems, ha, we will blow it up. So they fired, uh, I believe it's six now, of their Kinzel hypersonic missiles. They're launched by Russian aircraft. They fly faster than Mach 5, and they're designed to impact and decimate an area, a, a very large area, simply by the force exerted by something flying at 5,000-plus miles an hour. Well, the Patriot air defense system shot all six of them down. But not just that. The uh, Ukraine air defense has done a remarkable job with a number of systems that they have been, uh, that have been donated to their cause to shooting down everything that the Russians are sending. If they have air defense in that area then the Russian planes, helicopters, missiles are being shot out of the sky. So effectively, they have grounded the Russian Air Force. Okay. We are talking about your book, U.S. Critical Infrastructure, Its Importance and Vulnerabilities to Cyber and Unmanned Systems. I feel like you're, you're trying to warn us. And you're in Saudi Arabia. Are you talking about this book there? Uh, I have given the Ministry of Defense here a presentation. They acknowledge the threat. They are taking a number of steps to build what I would call a, a a center where they can do a better job of training and being ready for the threat. So over the past six or seven years, the Saudis have fired uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,280 Patriot missiles, which cost roughly $4 million each at every drone, every ballistic missile, every cruise missile fired into their country. Uh, so the threat is real here, and they're dealing with it every day. How do you get the U.S. to pay attention? Well, sadly, all I can do is write and give presentations. And after my dissertation was published, I was invited by 12 federal departments and agencies to come and give a threat or capability presentation. I did that. Every one of them said, holy cow, this is scary. And I said, well, yes, and it's only going to get worse. So we need to address this now, which means you have to go through the budgetary process, which generally speaking takes three to five years, and you have to fund research, and you have to fund uh, programs to develop counter systems. So what is working in Ukraine will not work in downtown Washington, D.C., because you can't fire lasers there, you can't fire jammers there, you can't fire missiles in the air there, so it requires a different solution. 
And quite honestly, um, the Russians are targeting everything critical infrastructure, namely power plants in Ukraine. The same could be done of the U.S. And there was actually a very famous attack that nobody knows anything about. Uh, there was a power sending station in Pennsylvania. I believe it was uh, the latter half of 2020. So some gentleman, unknown, took everything off of his commercial unmanned aerial system drone, put two pieces of rope with copper on the end. He flew this over the power sending station and tried to land it on some of the uh, facility inside. Now, the reason for the copper is you touch a number of electrical components, you're going to short it out. And if you do that, then the power for, I'm, I'm guessing here, 3,000-plus homes is going to stop. So this, this was a primitive attack. It wasn't successful. The FBI and other law enforcement were called in, but they have never figured out who this gentleman or gentlemen or ladies uh, was behind the attack. And he successfully took everything off that drone that would have identified who bought it, where they bought it, etc. So it was a scaled-down version that was intended to do just one thing, which was short out that power sending station. You know, I, I have to ask you, so, you know, the U.S. citizens have mixed feelings about Saudi Arabia. So you've written this book and you've you've made a presentation to the federal government here and to the Saudis. Like, how does that jive? Well, you're, you're getting in, into the political realm. So the only reason I accepted the job and came here was because during the interview, I had six Saudi generals that said um, words to the effect of, we know what you did, what you write, we want to learn. Would you please come and help us? We're being attacked. So if somebody were to say that to me and they were from anywhere other than probably Russia, Iran, China, my answer would be, I will come and give you advice and give you my expert opinion, and I will do my best to help you to stop this. So political considerations aside, that's the reason why I came here. And to a large extent, we've been successful trying to help them in that uh, endeavor. And the agencies that you addressed in the U.S. are aware of that. Well, this is a um, U.S. company. Right. So there is no requirement to say, may I please go over <laughs> there and help them with this issue. Uh, but that is, that is true of a number of uh, countries overseas. You don't have to ask permission by and large. Hmm. And uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, I've been trying to help my government for the past eight years, but they don't seem who want to listen uh, and to take what I'm writing to heart. Now, many people write books or articles and they say, you know, the sky is falling. Uh, this is one of the few cases where all you have to look at are a number of nations that have been attacked by unmanned aerial systems. Right. And Ukraine is a great example of a modern day. Every single day there's an example. So if you're not taking lessons away from that, I don't know what to say or who to talk right. to. And just, uh, just one other tidbit for you. Unmanned aerial systems actually came out in 1918. So for the past 
hundred years, to some extent, there have been unmanned aerial systems. Hmm. Uh, Predator was used in the Balkans in 1982. So this has been around a long time. Why the U.S. federal government, the Air Force, the Army, etc., why they said, holy cow, we've got this neat thing and we can do some neat things with it, why they didn't say, well, wait a minute, what if an enemy gets this? Do we have counter systems for it? Do we have a strategy, tactics, techniques, procedures? Do we? And the answer is we didn't think about it, so we didn't do it. We didn't develop it until very recently. What a story you have here. I hope you're able to make more presentations. You know, to be honest with you, there are a number of companies that reach out to me and ask me how much an hour, you know, would you help us with this? Uh, I would actually do it for free yeah. uh, because I think it is a real time, real world present day threat. And I will continue to try to help my government. The best way to do that is if somebody in the government said, you know what, let's hire that guy. Let's hire him and let him guide our effort. And that's what I try to do every day. So far, I'm, I'm pretty unsuccessful. <laughs> but I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I'll keep trying because change will only come from within. I truly believe that. Not from out here unless we're attacked. And I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, Me neither. Dr. Dorn, thank you so much. Thank you, Alice, for your time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bryn Daves is very busy at the University of Oklahoma, but managed to find time to write a children's story for her daughter that she didn't set out to publish until now. It is entitled, I Can Cape. So you're at the University Student Affairs Division, right? I'm an assistant vice president there and associate dean of students. And so um, usually nobody knows what that means. And so uh, basically what we do is everything a student does outside of the classroom and we oversee that experience for them. So either like where they eat, sleep, work out, join student organizations, go to counseling, student conduct, go Greek, I mean, everything outside of the classroom. When do you have time to write? (laughs) Well, um, that's why this took me so long. (laughs) But um, honestly, just kind of when I felt creative and wanted to do something that was fun and use other parts of my brain, I would just kind of take a moment and sit down and, you know, try to develop an idea that I already jotted down somewhere. When did you get this idea? Um, It was after my daughter was born um, in 2015. And I just really enjoyed reading her books that had kind of that cadence or um, just kind of rhymed and had that rhythm and flow. And I felt like she stayed more engaged with them. And as I just kind of started reading her more books every night as she was getting a little bit older, I was like, I could write one of these, you know. <laughs> and so I just kind of started jotting down ideas that um, would come to me. I usually just put them in my like notes on my phone and then once I'm ready to elaborate on them or, you know, really sit down and think about them, I kind of move it to my computer and start just, you know, writing a little bit more every time I think of something. And I'm kind of one of those people, too, that um, tinkers with things until they are no longer good, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so I've had to learn to, like, launch at 40 percent, like, hey, this is pretty good. I got to stop here and actually take action on something. And so. um 
yeah, this idea came about, I'd say probably in 2017, but I didn't actually do anything with it until about 2019. Um, I've always been an advocate for women and just kind of a feminist and working in higher education for what close to 17 years now. I have always worked with college age women and helping them develop. But um, like I said, when I had my daughter in 2015, I was like, you know, this journey could start a lot earlier than uh, when, when women are coming to college. And so um, I thought, how do I mix a little bit of all of this together um, so that I can start kind of building that in my daughter? And then, you know, I didn't even think about actually publishing anything or actually writing it for anybody else. I mean, I just wrote it for her and then I would read it to her. Um, but then, you know, she kind of got bored with the no pictures. <laughs> so I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do this. And so um, it's, it's just a story about um, overcoming challenges and, um, you know, kind of this idea that the cape is why this little girl can overcome those challenges, but then realizing, you know, it was her all along and the cape was just kind of the cover, but the cape kind of gave it the fun cadence that I was looking for. What's the name of your, your, your lead character? Well, I don't give her a name. There Um, is no name. There is no name. I just kind of like the idea that it could be anybody, (laughs) you know, and sometimes, you know, you stick names on things and people associate their own experience with experiences with those names. And so I read a meme the other day that it was like, you don't realize how many people you don't like in your life until you start having to name your own children. And (laughs) I was like, it's so true, you know? And so when I was looking at this, I kind of wanted the characters to be nameless and just more relationship based. And so, um, so you could just kind of insert yourself if you wanted to. So, um, I do, I usually like to do things in threes. And so, uh, but the three main areas that she's, um, battling with, I guess you could say, or struggling with is, um, you know, we start with something as simple as tying her shoe and the laces being messy and having to figure out how to tie her own shoes. Um, and I kind of use the the I can cape part where, you know, I grab my I can cape and think about a plan um, as kind of that moment that every person has where they're like, you're frustrated. What am I supposed to do here? And it's just kind of that mental, like, take a deep breath or grab your cape, figure out what you're going to do next and then just do it. And so um, that's kind of how these play out. And so she gets her cape and then all of a sudden, you know, she knows she's saying to herself how she bunny ears the laces and goes through all the steps. Another one is that she has this kind of um, unruly curly hair. And uh, as, as you would probably be able to relate, you know, women and their hair, that's always kind of a battle. If it's straight, you want it curly. If it's curly, you want it straight. And so she, um, finally decides like she wants it out of her face but doesn't want all the curly bumps you know it has to be perfect and smooth but instead she just decides that curly's beautiful too and is like just kind of embraces it and puts her big curly hair up into a ponytail so she can continue doing her math homework and then the last one is um sleeping in her bed overnight and it just being dark you know and she's 
scared and she doesn't know what to do or how to calm herself. And so she grabs her cape and snuggles in and, you know, is able to fall asleep and make it through the whole night. So she wakes up pretty proud of herself. Sweet. And then, yeah, until she realizes the cape's not in her bed when she wakes up. And so then she runs to her mom, who was the gifter of the cape in the first place and is just like, well, I, you know, she has to have it in order to do all these things. And her mom just shares some words of wisdom about how it wasn't really the cape. And so, yeah, it's just, just a sweet little um, rhyming book that I hope, you know, little people read and love and realize that they can do things. You could use that cape, like you could keep using that cape. Yeah. Because, right? You go yeah. into school, mm-hmm. somebody's mean to you. What do you mm-hmm. say to them? How do you deal with that situation? You put the cape on, which is really... It's just that process, instead of doing a knee-jerk reaction, you put the cape on and you think about it for a second before you react. Kind of gather that composure and then figure out your plan forward. Yeah. And that's kind of also the point, if I did do more books, that I didn't want names because not the, the main characters are not really the main characters. It's the cape, that's the main character, the storyline. And then there's little things throughout the book that I would probably consistently take through the rest, but it may not be a little girl or it, you know, it may be a boy or it may, you know, I don't know what it would hold, but I just didn't want it to be attached to certain people. So your little girl isn't a little girl anymore. No, she's not. <laughs> well, and you know, it's so funny. This actually is, um, wasn't based on my little girl. It was based on a a best friend that I've had forever and um, a mother at a really young age. And she just kind of, she always could just do anything and she handled it and she figured out a plan and she took care of her kid and raised him. And just a really great example of a a mother that um, I got to watch be a mother. And so I based it off of her, which my daughter was a little upset about because she's like, mom, that's not me. My hair is blonde and I have whiter skin. And I said, that's right. This is not you. <laughs> this is a friend of mine. Um, and what I picture her being like when she was little. And so um, she was a little, little uh, bruised on that one because now that she's old enough, she's like, I want to be the star, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of funny. Are you able to go out and read your book to other little kids or give it to the early child education class there at the school? Well, you know, it's interesting. I wanted to um, gift it to my daughter's school um, as kind of the first thing to do. But, uh, you know, they can't accept any outside books any longer without going through a whole process at her school with the banned books and all the all the political things around that. And so, um, sadly, I couldn't even gift it. But I think what we'll do next and um, is she actually wants to read it. And so I was thinking about letting her do a little video that she could read or, you know, read it to her school on their little website that they do. Um, they do some like goodnight stories. And so they let little kids come in and read the books to their followers and stuff. So I thought that might be a, a fun way to get her involved. That's a great idea. That's a really great idea because you must be so busy. I don't know how you even, you know, manage to (laughs) write the book, let alone go out. Are you going to keep writing? Um, You know, I I go back and forth. This project uh, probably should have taken me like 
maybe a couple months and just because of life and COVID and it honestly not being the priority, I drug it out for so long to where um, it became, instead of more of a, a project, it became kind of more of this chore that I was letting kind of slip by. And so it wasn't until like the last few months that I just went, you know what, I'm just going to knock this out. And so um, I do know that if I do write some more, which I probably have 15 in my, um, um, saved in my Google Docs right now, but if I actually develop them and do it again, I've already told myself, I have got to promise that I am going to like set aside dedicated time to just answer my publication assistance emails and, you know, do what they need me to do on the right timing so that I can keep this as a fun project and bucket list item. So well, that's a great idea. Yeah, I know. Right. Who thought? <laughs> what a great idea. I know, I know. it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Well, listen, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was yeah. nice to meet you. It was very nice to meet you. And you have a great day. Okay. Thank you so much, Alice. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.